Welcome to the Broad Beta Podcast. Broad Beta is a space to openly share women's and genderqueer experiences of adventures in the wild from the ordinary to the heroic. We bring you raw stories with the beta on the food, gear, and technical tips behind them. Our featured broads behind Broad Beta are climbers, backcountry skiers, and outdoor adventurers of all kinds. We aim to inspire and inform each other through our stories. Thank you for listening. In this episode, Jeannie Wall is going to read her story, Trust Your Instincts. It's part of a trilogy that we published in the first edition of Broad Beta back in November 2021. Leslie Gaines-Germain is here today to introduce Jeannie. Jeannie Wall is the author of the story you're about to hear. My name's Leslie. I'm going to give her a brief introduction because she's a friend of mine and we also co-founded Broad Beta together. Jeannie is truly the heart and vision behind Broad Beta, and she's the reason that we're all here now doing this podcast. Jeannie is absolutely, to her core, a mountain athlete. She's been skiing, climbing, and spending time in the mountains since she was really young and she's been tackling successively bigger objectives throughout her life. Jeannie is probably most well-known for being a Nordic ski racer. She was on the competitive circuit for many years, and she won many prestigious races, but she's really, truly an athlete in all realms, trail running, biking. She's pushed the limit in all mountain sports. Professionally, Jeannie started working at Patagonia at a young age, she moved out to Ventura pretty soon after college, I believe, and eventually she convinced Patagonia to let her move to Bozeman so she could pursue ski racing and also be closer to the mountains. She's now been here in Bozeman for over 20 years. In that time, she's worked for several outdoor companies and within the local food business. Jeannie's really spent more time in the mountains than anyone I know. She's arranged her life around trips in the mountains. If she's not in the mountains on a trip, she's scheming for one and looking at the weather. I think early on, Jeannie started off with big mountaineering pursuits. She has several big ascents in Canada and Alaska. Throughout time, she migrated into more technical climbing on both rock and ice. And I will say from experience that it is a treat to be in the mountains with Jeannie. She has a ton of knowledge and incredible intuition for moving through complicated terrain. And if she's been someplace before, she usually doesn't forget where she's going. She can also read new terrain very well. Mountain pursuits aside, Jeannie's an avid reader. She's a really interesting writer. Whenever I'm looking for a, a new book, I usually ask what's on her bedside table. So all that said, you're about to hear Jeannie read a story she wrote about a climb that she and I and another woman did on El Capitan about this time last year. I hope you enjoy. Hi, my name is Jeannie Wall. I am a founder of Broad Beta. And we are super excited to bring you our new audio versions of our stories. I'm going to narrate Trust Your Instincts, a story I wrote for the initial launch of Broad Beta about climbing a route on El Cap with two wonderful women, Leslie and Anju, who will also be doing a version of their stories on audio. Check them out. Trust Your Instincts. 
I'm falling, falling upside down past my belayer, and long enough to think about hitting the ledge. I had heard my protection pop, and I knew I should have trusted my instincts moments earlier. Lurking fear, a route on El Cap, lived up to its name in many ways. It also labels the visceral gnawing of my nerves at the start of any wild adventure. Half the battle for me is getting off the ground and letting my angst fall away with each pitch. This is more acutely felt with women partners than with males. My emotions are bound to emerge. Ironically, this climb's reputation was the antithesis of its name, often alluded to as a warm-up to the nose and other harder aid routes in El Cap. My partner Leslie and I had climbed the nose the previous autumn, reversing this prescribed order and causing us to take lurking fear less seriously than it deserved. We returned to Yosemite this spring to climb Half Dome and enjoy some long free routes, but we'd also committed to a big wall in El Cap with our friend Anju, with whom we'd only cragged a bit around our hometown of Bozeman, Montana. After researching options, we landed on the idea of climbing the Salafe, a moderate, quote-unquote, aid climb, with some challenging free pitches up a proud section of the wall. Full of classic pre-climb guidebook stoke, Leslie and I drove from home in Bessie, my 91 van again, nursing its weak AC system through blistering 90-degree heat on Nevada's highways, over the Sierra and down into Yosemite. It was hot, perfect conditions for Half Dome's cold northwest face. We promptly packed our haul bag and approached up the death slabs to its base, an arduous three-hour slog. A serene bivy was our reward. We were going old school and hauling the route. Our first 22-hour day questing up chimneys in the dark in a stuck haul bag got us onto big sandy ledge. After a few hours of sleep, Leslie set out on the first block of climbing up the zigzags. As I was jugging up the second pitch, she yelled to me to set the anchor. I can see the core of the rope, she said. I almost puked. With a butterfly knot around the core shot, we climbed safely to an unusually quiet and empty summit. Exhausted but not finished, we opted to stumble down the eight-mile trail to the valley with our loads digging into our shoulders. After a rest day, we climbed some classic and obscure free routes with Anju. At camp over beers, the boys shared the not-so-minor details of the multiple chimney and off-width pitches we would encounter on the Salafe. None of us loved the idea of bumping up one number six or seven giant camelot, 60 feet of wide crack with 2,000 feet of air below us. We also did not want to stress slowing down other parties on such a popular route. We decided to switch gears and routes. Lurking Fear is a C2-plus aid route without much moderate free climbing and 12 pitches shorter than the Nose or Salafe. As such, we naively approached this new goal as not too taxing or stressful with a chance to sleep on a newly burrowed inflatable portal edge. Little did we know what lurked ahead. I believe in trusting instincts. The more I listen to them, the more I know they are telling me to pay attention. But all too often, heuristics trump instincts, no matter how hard I work toward the contrary. Mental shortcuts make decisions easier, and groupthink encourages heuristics. Raw emotions are the overdrive of decision-making. As the youngest in the chaos of eleven children, I was doggedly determined to be my own person, but was overrun regularly by family decisions, right or wrong. My first rule of adventure is that the more people, the more complicated. That said, three people in a big wall is usually more fun and less stressful. We'd been psyched to climb as a team of three and share a big adventure in the valley. Then Leslie and I got the beat down on Half Dome, and my instincts shouted at me to bail on another exhausting aid route on El Cap. But I did not want to be left out of a cool adventure with two awesome women. I convinced myself it'd be fun, and I silenced my body's signals to the contrary. After three shoulder surgeries, I often feel like an injured raptor with sewn wings delicately balanced on the edges of my torso. Jugging and hauling up a big wall is mostly construction work with a bit of engineering, about the least nurturing thing for one's body, especially the wings. 
On the nose, I'd laid awake on ledges with pain shooting down my arms. One big wall on the strip was enough. My instincts warned me that another might put me over the edge. But FOMO won again. Instincts be damned. At camp, we tested our portal edges on the side of my van and squabbled about what rock to bring. After sorting food and clothes, we slogged the seat trail up to the wall on our recon day. The scene at the base of the route lit up my instincts. Two young men, Dylan and Milo, had been waiting hours to start behind multiple parties still on the lower pitches. Dylan was twitching and trying to dissuade us from launching. Ignoring his nervous chatter, Andrew and I used the passing hours to fill water jugs from mossy drips on the wall above us. We led up after them in the late afternoon. Two parties had set up their ledges at the top of pitch three with tons of daylight left, a bad sign. We fixed two pitches and wrapped. We descended to the comfort of my van and Lower Pines campground only to eat late, sort gear, and get some sleep before 6 a.m. wake up. As we launched the next morning, I think we were all expecting to retrieve our ropes and retreat once we got to the base of the junk show above. As we drove from Lower Pinesdale Cap, the clear, crisp spring air became thick with smoke. My stomach sank. We arrived at the meadow to a controlled burn that was started the day before. As we walked to the base of the route, the smoke was black as night and thick as thieves, stealing our thunder, our enthusiasm, and oxygen. My instincts meter was the only thing lighting our approach. We waded through smoke, exhaustion, and doubt, but somehow found ourselves moving up the first few pitches. I was almost hopeful we'd have to bail, but push came to shove, almost literally, as we passed parties generous enough to let us play through, sharing leads and ropes and the general cause of upward movement. Finally, I led the double-hook moves on what we considered the traverse pitch of no return. We were fully committed. Changing leads, two of us hauling our giant pigs, we made it to within one pitch of a bivy ledge before dark. Anju solidly led a scary, long, no-fall pitch with minimal protection, which torched her mentally and physically. The long, uncomfortable hanging belay and possibility of Anju not having enough rope to finish her pitch, along with a stuck haul bag, taxed Leslie in my mental states almost as much as Anju's. We were all exhausted. Leslie set off without much light or clear direction, in hopes of getting to a ledge. She reached the guys on their portal edge mid-pitch. Surly Dylan expressed opposition to sharing the anchor or space with us, forcing Leslie to yell down and ask whether she ought to keep going or retreat. It was pitch black, and Anju promptly replied she should retreat before asking my opinion. Torn between two strong, competent women with two different but rational desires, I often could agree with them both, but ultimately trusted Leslie's belief she could reach the ledge. This option would save hours of setup time and provide a less stressful morning with a ledge to do our duties and make rational decisions about our following day. After expressing to Anju that it was worth the risk, I yelled up, keep going. As I was lowered out with the haul bag 50 feet to our right into the dark abyss, I was sensitive to the fact that our decision would tax Anju more than she needed. She had it in her to complete the jugging and cleaning of one more pitch, but at this point, we were each in our own worlds, digging deep to stay safe and keep it all together. After fatigue-induced tension over where to put our inflatable ledges, we set them up, filled our empty bellies with dehyde dinners, and gazed at the eerie orange glow of the controlled burn in the valley below. Billowing smoke engulfed our lungs and enshrouded a full moon. Finally, I settled into my sleeping bag, marveling at my tenuous position on the edge of the abyss and relishing life's precariousness. Dawn brought an uplift of clean air, clear minds, and moods. I pried open my swollen fingers to brew up mandatory java and choke down some oatmeal. After a quick takedown of camp, we wrapped down to the guy's ledge, which was still in full camp mode. I led up an ever-thinning crack to another fabulously uncomfortable hanging belay. Voices reverberated all around, yelling from an approaching speed-climbing party. I politely asked if the two men were talking to me. I was unimpressed with their approaching egos as their leader clipped all of my gear and promptly came to a hook placement and was baffled as I had been. Without a hook, however, 
He used my assistance and pulled through the move and joined my belay, not asking if he could use my anchor, but only which locker of mine he should use. The rest of the day passed smoothly. Anju and I finished our blocks, and Leslie quickly led up to Thanksgiving Ledge. The ledge was big enough to de-harness and hobble around unroped. Beautiful, moist moss decorated the cave. After serious rehydration, a relaxed meal and some laughs, we collapsed into our sleeping bags. Sore, but excited to be only a couple of pitches from the top of El Cap, we all felt a little relief. I took the last technical lead up a steep, mossy corner, where I passed an unseen anchor on the slab to my left. Down climbing to the anchor, I left a piece of gear above. Leslie and Anju jugged up to me. We pulled the rope through the piece above and asked Anju to grab it as she jugged up. I left the belay to finish our last pitch of low-angle slab with the two of them hanging out on one of our only comfortable belay ledges, clipped in with their daisies relaxing in the sun. We were basically done, the time between really being done and when you easily let your guard down. We were fatigued from three days of aiding on hooks and hanging in hideous positions, but psyched to be near the top. I led up 30 feet and looked for options to place pro when my partners yelled that I should put in some gear, lower down to the piece, retrieve the left behind camp, and keep going. I was confused about changing our plan. Why should I lower down instead of one of them just jugging off to the side and grabbing the piece, I thought. I announced my piece of pro was in a flare without other good placements. I adjusted it and tested it twice. There was no obvious place to put another piece of protection. After aiding on hooks for two days, one cam can seem pretty safe, especially since I was on a low-angle slab. Complacency, fatigue, a desire not to question my partners, a longing to be done. I don't really know, maybe a combination of all of the above. I can be argumentative in my need to be right, lasting baggage from an upbringing I continually fight to overcome. This was a chance to concede and respect their request. Heuristics trumped instinct. As I lowered down about 15 feet and made the shift to the right toward the green alien, my protection popped. I remember hearing the wind or my body flying, flipped upside down, thinking this might be it, waiting for impact. I hit the end of the rope just before the ledge, whiplashed back upright, and hit my helmet on the rock. For a moment, time stood still. I was alive, not paralyzed, and filled with the guilt and stupidity of a poorly placed piece. I went into triage mode and started to jug up to my partners who screamed, No, stop, we're tangled in the rope. They had me switch to the hall line as they tried to uncoil the pretzel that had enveloped them as the extra rope fell onto them and twisted them into the hall bag. Anju's leg was torqued and Leslie's arm caught in a harness. I had taken a factor two fall of 60 feet, one I never ever thought possible for someone afraid to take even a small fall on a sport climb. We recouped at the belay, Anju assessed her leg and thought she could keep hobbling up the last pitch. I clipped a draw to the anchor and headed up the slab, carefully placing pro. From the next anchor, I gave her a tight belay as she hopped her way to the slab to the final traverse that led to the base of the fixed lines. Anju then stoically endured a tremendous amount of pain to jug herself to the top of the fixed lines where her husband Aki and our friend Daniel met us to help us take our loads down. We stayed close to Anju as she hopped all the way off El Cap on Aki's side. I carried a load of tremendous guilt and shame at injuring a friend due to a poor decision and poorly placed protection. Scenarios raced through my head faster than my shifting feelings. I tried to ignore the pain in my back and stomach from the whiplash, made worse by the hauling of the pigs up the slabs. My guilt was interspersed with anger and confusion over a changed decision that seemed originally so safe and simple. There's an old adage that aid climbers are those who can't free climb. I have a newfound respect for good aid climbers. It is an incredibly punishing endeavor that requires all faculties firing under extreme fatigue to be safe and effective on a big wall. But more than ever now, I prefer the freedom of free climbing. Thankfully, this adventure was a learning one and not catastrophic. 
For weeks after the climb, I rode a roller coaster of emotions, downloading often with Leslie and finally getting a chance to ask Anju what her reasoning was for having me lower down. When she explained it just seemed simpler in a way not to forget the cam, I was finally able to free myself from my monkey mind. Maybe this is part of the uniqueness of tying in with women partners, the emotional awareness and willingness to openly and honestly share feelings instead of stuffing them away. Despite and because of this adventure's challenges, I feel once again inspired and empowered to tie in with great women partners. Thank you for listening today. We hope you enjoyed the story. Hey, speaking of stories, have you ever thought about sharing your story? We want your story. Yes, you. If you have shared any kind of climbing or skiing adventure as a team of women or gender fluid folks, we'd love to share it with our broad beta community. This is a space for our untold personal journeys, their joys, sorrows, struggles, and epiphanies. If you don't want to write a featured story, there are so many other ways to get involved with Broad Beta. You can write a short story to appear on the at broad.beta Instagram. You could speak at a broadcast event, send us a gear review for your favorite piece of gear, or email us your questions. Our team has years of outdoor experience and we want to share that with you. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us at broadbeta at gmail.com. And for more great content, check us out online at broadbeta.com. Intro music in today's episode is by Holizna Radio and conclusion music is by Rocky Marziano. Thanks for listening today.